And then I sort of, I lost sight of him. So I thought, okay, well, he's he's had his feet, he's heading off. And then just out of the corner of my eye, I just saw this tusk emerge, probably about six inches from my face. And I looked down and his foot was, again, about a few inches from mine. And what he'd done, he'd actually come around the back of me and was effectively standing right next to where I was sitting. <laughs> And I remember thinking, okay, fine. Yeah, not much I can do apart from just sit there. And I remember looking down. And one thing that struck me amongst all of that was how shiny his toenails were. I could see my reflection in these toenails of an elephant. I was looking there and at his feet. And then I looked up and this trunk sort of came up, just sniffed me from foot right the way up to my face. Just moved his trunk up me, had a sniff, and then very quietly moved off. That was Safari Guide and photographer Matt Armstrong. And this is the Travelling Optimist podcast with Steve Odie. So today's episode of the Travelling Optimist podcast with me, Steve Odie, is all about escape, a chance to press reset. And trust me, I'm pressing that button a lot at the moment. It's a beautiful chance to get away, transport yourself to a place of unrivaled wonderfulness. We're going to Africa on the Travelling Optimist podcast and talk to a safari guide, naturalist and professional photographer and hopefully leave you wanting to take your next adventure to Zambia and Zimbabwe. He studied zoological conservation at university. He's managed camps across Africa. He's one of just a few hundred original South Luangwa guides. Uh, He moved to Zambia where he worked for several years before coming home to set up Armstrong Safaris. Matt Armstrong is the founder and head guide of Armstrong Safaris. And what's always struck me whenever I meet up or speak to Matt is his passion for wildlife. His photography really captures Africa in a very true and very raw sense. And so let's all transport ourselves back to Africa and have a chat with Matt and uh, his time in Africa. Hey, Matt, how are you doing? Hi, Steve. Good. Thank you so much for those kind words. Oh, Um, no, it's an absolute pleasure. I will explain to the listeners as well that you're um, you're currently in a car overlooking the Isle of... So I'm actually in a van, actually, just looking out across to Isla Andura up in Scotland, where I am spending this isolation time with my girlfriend up here. So it's next to Zambia, actually, Scotland, and uh, overlooking the Isle of Dura was probably a a very close second. Yeah, I mean, if if I am going to be stuck, for a better word... um, (laughs) in the UK, then this isn't a bad place to be, I have to say. (laughs) Absolutely. And I I mentioned in the intro that you capture Africa um, in its sort of rawness through your photography. And one of those images that always sort of stuck with me ever since I first met you is that picture of the um, adult male lion that's just eaten a buffalo or something. And and it's Mm. just basically his whole face is red. And you, you capture something that is, you know, not something that people want to see but they you know it really is real Africa isn't it yeah it is I mean I think from my point of view photography came as a secondary aspect to being in the bush um, for a prolonged period of time so I was always interested in wildlife and the interactions between sort of nature and how things work in that sense and my love for photography grew out of that so I'm not really coming at photography from an artistic point of view, although it has developed into a form of artistic expression for me. So when people ask me about my photography, it's far more of a documentary style um, and capturing the real side of nature than the fine art area of photography. Um, And that's 
what draws me to to Africa more than anything is the harsh reality of what actually happens there in these wild environments. You know, you are also a safari guide and conservationist and and naturalist. The, the photography kind of it sort of transcends that a little bit, doesn't it? Because you are then in a position where your photographs have been able to help raise funds from a, a charitable perspective, haven't they? Yes, yeah. I mean, again, it's due to the fact that I've spent so much time there that I've been fortunate enough to capture so many interesting and sort of weird and wonderful things. And mm. yeah, a number of people have actually gone on to use my images to raise money for various wildlife organizations. It's actually how myself and my current girlfriend met over Instagram. She asked to borrow a number of my images for paintings, which she does to raise money for, for wildlife organizations and conservations throughout Africa and yeah. throughout the world. Brilliant. So when you decided to go to university and study zoological conservation, what was your kind of motivation for that where did that come from <laughs> so the i'll go back even further so i decided i wanted to be a safari guide when i was 13 years old my dad was working down in south africa and it fell over the easter holidays so we all as a family my myself my sister my mum and dad went down dad did his work and then after that we went on safari in the timbavati adjoining the kruger national park and i remember from the moment i got there i just thought this is what I want to be doing and this is where I want to spend well, the majority of my life in this environment. So we came back from that and I spent the whole of the next five years or so at school preparing to go into that field once I left. So I left school and went to train as a safari guide on my gap year in South Africa, which was incredible. Six months of pure immersion in the bush, theoretical and practical, all sorts of things from insects to mammals to firearms training, anything you can think of regarding that was in included. Brilliant. So from from there, how did you how did you end up going to South Luanga and Zambia? So South Luanga came about actually whilst I was at Newquay, I applied for housing and accommodation and we're basically giving a list of various hostels and hotels that during the quiet time, so not the summer period, offered their place to students. So I, I picked one pretty much at random and I ended up living with a who's now my best friend is a third generation Zambian farmer. So his grandparents moved down from Kenya um, in the 60s and set up a farm just outside of Lusaka, obviously became very good friends. And Alex sent me a message and said he's heard of a position going in South Luangwa with a company called Shenton Safaris. So we ended up applying for that, got the job and moved down. I think it was early 2014. I think we headed down there and began working for Shenton Safaris then. Yeah, which is where I fell in love with South Luangwa in particular. And the area of South Luangwa, where Shenton Safaris are based, is, yeah. in my opinion, one of the best areas in Africa for game viewing. No, it's a, it is a beautiful, beautiful place. So describe to me, you're brand new in this, in the business almost from a, a safari guide perspective. So describe to me, you know, how did it all work out? So did you, were you managing camps or were you uh, taking guests out on, on game drives? Um, actually both. So I was there with uh, with my wife at the time and sort of we were a manage management guide couple. So I would basically take care of guests in terms of the safari experience and she would cover everything else, which worked out fantastically. What What is it about Zambia and South Luangwa then that made you say that it's one of the best places? I always say if your main goal is to see wildlife up close, personal, doing things on a regular basis without hordes of people around you, then South Luangwa 
in particular the northern part of the park is the place to go and the wildlife in that part of the park is phenomenal i mean south Oanga is so rich in terms of diversity and abundance that you've got predators everywhere basically in that particular area there were 12 leopards that we saw on a regular basis and when i say regular sort of daily and three lion prides within the vicinity so in terms of actually being a guide it was probably the easiest place to to guide people because i knew we'd drive out of camp and within 45 minutes to an hour we're going to bump into something that sounds oh, incredible. No, no buts. It was, it's incredible so i have been to katavi so when you were talking about okay. being very quiet i think i counted at, i think 26 beds or something in the whole of the national park so yeah. you know when when we were there we saw um, lions take down a, a giraffe we we were like the only vehicle for like four days yeah. uh, around this pride what's the difference between katavi and south Wanga in terms of footfall in terms of guests um yeah i mean south Wanga is significantly busier than katavi if you go to a number of the lodges that are situated close to the main gate just outside the park that immediate area is very busy and can be very congested and there's some fantastic lodges there that i use however i would always recommend either heading to the the northern part of the park yeah. that I mentioned before or down south there are a number of smaller bush camps down south and once you head into those directions I mean you're about two and a half three hour drive away from the main areas yeah and there's only say a handful of camps in those areas so then it becomes a lot quieter like you say Katavi is is incredibly remote and very difficult to get to which I think is a big reason why it is so quiet if you want a completely wild experience then Katavi is fantastic but I have to say in terms of viewing wildlife still not on the level of South Luangwa. So in terms of, you know, getting that beautiful photographic moment with a leopard, is patience a, a, a big thing if you're looking to take people out that are looking to, you know, try and get that perfect shot? Or, or not that I'm a great lover of trying to get a perfect shot because actually sometimes it, it's the, the ones that are slightly more imperfect are, are the best ones in, but then that's only me and I'm not a very good photographer so what sort of tips can you can you give to people that are interested in in wildlife photography patience as you mentioned is is key yeah if you've got if you're in particular if you want to capture a certain image then you're going to have to expect to sit and wait for something to happen i mean you can relatively easily find a leopard in a tree mm. take a shot and will be a great shot of a leopard but if you for example wanted a shot of a leopard coming down from a tree standing up stretching all the various poses mm. that they do then it could be a case of sitting waiting a few hours for the leopard to move for example if it's made a kill the chances are it's not going to move very far while it feeds on that and it will feed intermittently and then rest and get up again feed again so it's just a case of really having a goal um, of what you want to capture and then being patient and waiting for that particular moment to happen and then being prepared for when it does happen that you're in a situation to capture it are you an advocate of going out early morning and going out sort of a bit later in the day to get that sort of that beautiful yeah i mean you talk of in wildlife photography of the golden hour and it's actually generally really only about 30 minutes or so in the morning mm. and in the evening so just after sunrise and then just before sunset the general program for the day when i'm on safari is is usually up at five out at 5 30 till about 10 o'clock in the morning and then again out at around 3 3 30 until about eight so you're out in the bush yeah at these times when the light is going to be at its best but having said that i mean i say you've got a small window of that perfect golden light to work with and the chances of something doing what you want it to do in that time period is highly unlikely but again that's where patience comes into it and being ready yeah absolutely on your tours that you take um, clients out do you do sort of master classes with them as well to kind of get the, the best out of their, their photographs and things as 
it's developed now, my primary role with some clients is photographic instructor. So a lot of my clients are very keen photographers and I am, I'm there effectively to help them get the shots they want and to make sure they've got everything set up and are in place to, to get that. As I said, now the way I work and given laws around working in foreign countries and all that, I don't actually drive the vehicles anymore like I did when I was based there. So I always work very closely with the lodge based guides. Yeah. and the various places I go to. And luckily, I know I have a great relationship with people at Shenton Safaris, given the history I have with them. So it's very easy in that sense to work with them and they understand what I'm looking for. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so do you sort of, well, I know we've talked about this on and off in terms of the rules of photography and because mm. um, you, you talked about ignoring the rules. What, what sort of things do you mean by that? I come across it quite a lot and I sort of call it camera club syndrome where people are so caught up on sort of for example the rule of thirds making sure the composition is perfect in accordance to that so where you have your subject mm. in one third of the image and again a lot of people come with this notion that you should always shoot with the sun behind you so the light is on the subject which if you want a great portrait shot of a leopard then you obviously that's what you want but when you're working with wildlife and in an environment such as that you have very little control over or you have no control over what the animal does and it could be a case of they've decided to sit in a place where the light's coming up behind them. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, you can't exactly ask, ask it to move. You can try and position your vehicle, but at the end of the day, if a leopard is sat in the branches of a sausage tree and the only window you have is where the light is, is backlit, and you've just got to work with that. So yeah, yeah. I think that's a big thing you have to, if you're going into wildlife photography, you just have to be very flexible and just be prepared to work with what the environment has given yeah. you. You're not shooting in a studio where you have complete control over the light and of the subject. So it's just very important that you just work with what you've got. I think that's a, 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 another reason why people love going on safari because every encounter is always different. And I think that's another thing, the reason why sort of people keep coming back, looking for that different opportunity to see a caracal or a, mm. a civet cat, or a, like you said, just getting that beautiful leopard in the tree and, uh, you know, with the, the sun behind you. And it's that moment of magic, really. I think that's what people are, mm. keep coming back for. Do you find? Yeah, I do. And But one of the things I always try and sort of instill in my guests is that not to judge the success of their trip based on the photos they take like I say there's so much there and so much to experience that it's very easy to get caught up in getting that perfect shot I was with uh, some clients that we were in Kafui National Park another part of Zambia um, at the end of last year and we had a great time and it was actually the first safari and very keen photographer. And I could see she just wasn't happy with the photo she was getting. Again, as there are, there were branches across the face of leopards. The light wasn't great. And I remember talking to her and a few weeks previous to that, I took a shot of a leopard that I've wanted to take for six years. Basically, it took me six years to for everything to line up to get that shot. And I remember having this discussion with, with my guest and just saying, look, we're going to see what we see and we will put you in the best position possible. But at the end of the day, as I said, it's not a studio, it's not a zoo. You're just going to have to work with what you've got and just appreciate being here and don't get so wrapped up in the photography side of things. Um, yeah, yeah. And that way, the experience, as soon as we had that discussion, everyone relaxed and the experience as a whole became much more enjoyable. And you're just able to appreciate the other things, the birds, the antelope, for example. And a lot of people come with this concept of just chasing after big cats. And if you, I just feel that that way you miss so much mm. 
because there's so much to look at, to talk about, even to photograph. Insects can be fascinating and beautiful to photograph. A lot of biggest advice I give people is to just not get caught up in the photography and don't base the success of your trip on the images you come back with at the end of it, because there's so much more in yeah, the overall fire experience. You're absolutely right. If you're just sort of focusing on one thing, you do miss a lot. One thing that keeps drawing me back to Africa is 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 just waking up and it's the uh, the bird song in the morning, you know, and that chilly drive out uh, mm. when the sun is literally just coming up. The noise of, of the the animals is there, realizing it's another day, and it's those small moments that really really make Africa and it's the it's the sunsets as well and the feeling that you're you're in paradise really no it is I mean that is one of my my favorite times is that first thing when it's still dark down around the campfire first thing in the morning and just sipping on your cup of coffee and just watching the world around you come to life so yeah. the sun just starts to just starts to shed its first light over over the environment and you can hear the birds coming in and it's it's one of those sort of yeah everything is waking up sort of the the diurnal species and everything else is then on its way to bed so you've got the movement of the hippo coming back into the river yeah and the impala and everything just starting to come to life and to say the birds as well and it's just sitting and taking that all in they are some of the best moments for me on safari you know i treasure those moments actually and I, I you know we're both very lucky that we've been able to go to to these places you know reasonably frequently and and it's not something that i would ever ever take for granted and and i think this is why i i think people are very very keen to get involved with conservation and saving these these natural habitats isn't it because it would be very easy to say oh it's just not worth it you know, it is what it is. And um, and within a, the space of a generation, these places will be gone. In Zambia, do you know, it, from a conservation perspective, what are they doing to preserve these places? Um, in Zambia, for example, take Tafawangwa. There's a number of organisations there. The main conservation organisation there is Conservation South Luangwa, run by a great lady, Rachel. And they've basically taken on a lot of the, and in conjunction with um, Wildlife Authority, um, taken on a lot of the anti-poaching patrols, de-snaring of wildlife, and basically just making sure that the park is used in the correct way, that there aren't poachers going in and setting snares and it's just what it's that age-old argument of if somewhere's not providing benefit to the local community then of course the local community are going to to use the park to feed to feed them themselves and their families so it's the biggest thing is making sure these areas are valuable to the local communities which with tourism that is sort of the main objective and yeah. the best way to conserve these areas i mean for example south of Wangra alone in the area the Mfui, which is the town village around it just through salaries generates about three million dollars a year to mm -hmm. the local community in terms of income through all the lodges and so on so that's a great example of a place an area giving value direct value to the local community and that then gives them a reason to protect it and to say to people no hold on don't don't go in there don't set snares because yeah. the value to us now is people coming to visit the park instead of using it as a larder yes absolutely and that's another reason why we need this coronavirus to come to a, a conclusion yeah. fairly quickly because then that's going to have a the knock-on effect is in these communities, isn't it? In um, in and around these safari parks all over Africa, really, where they're going to um, find that the income that is not there anymore then needs to be balanced with the mm. conservation side, so that it's still 
it's still there's still going to be places where we can send our clients to in the coming months. Mm, no, exactly. I mean, I had this this exact conversation with a friend of mine the other day, and it is that is for me the biggest worry amidst all of this is that these places then lose their value to local communities, and the only value that they then have is as a supermarket. So if they're then not getting money from tourists, I mean, it's, it's one of those. It's you can't blame them because they have families to feed and they need to eat and they've got these resources on their doorstep that provide that. So it's, mm. that is the biggest worry for me is making sure these places remain intact uh, amidst all of this, which with organizations on the ground, hopefully that can be the case. And especially if this thing passes relatively quickly, but if yeah. it goes on and on, then that is, that's going to become a serious issue. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know that um, lodge managers always have some excellent <laughs> stories to tell. Okay, so and I can hear you laughing in the background. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, uh, you know, and I, I mean, I've heard some, I've heard some crackers in my time. What, what would you say was the funniest moment? A couple of the funniest moments that you've you've experienced when you were out in the bush. So I'd say so. One of the first rules of lodge management and guiding that you're taught when you're hosting guests is never talk about scary moments, never talk about politics, and never bring up hunting. Those are the three things. And ultimately, all that people ever want to hear about is your funny stories, close encounters, and yeah. so on. So it's uh, yeah, it always makes me chuckle. People actually want to hear your horror stories, <laughs> which I have plenty of. Didn't you have a lion bite your foot or something? Y- yeah. So- <laughs> So when you live in these these environments for any period of time, it's inevitable there's going to be things happen. And none of the camps in South Luangwa, for example, are fenced, so animals roam in and out freely. But yes, no, there was that one with the with the lion actually biting my foot, where I actually wasn't guiding on that particular occasion. I just went along. I didn't have guests, so I jumped on a vehicle with one of my colleagues, and we headed out. And I was sat in the passenger seat, and um, the Land Cruiser that we had the doors get removed because you're constantly jumping in and out of the vehicle, checking tracks, and so on. So it's yeah. easier just to take the doors off and we actually came across the pride the hollywood pride which we know very well or knew very well and the whole pride and they were in front of us i think it was probably about 21 in total so the two males the females and a number of cubs and we were busy photographing directly ahead of us and one of the cubs actually came around and say cub is about nine months old so still the size of a, a fairly large dog and we were so busy photographing what was in front of us i just i just noticed a tug on my foot and i sort of what's that look down and there's this uh this lion had just he wasn't biting me just sort of put his mouth on my shoe and was just being inquisitive and had a a little tug and as soon as i looked (laughs) he sort of his eyes looked up at me and i was looking down at him and i sort of nudged my colleague and as soon as my colleague looked and he had two sets of eyes on him he was like oh no no bitten off more than i can chew here and uh, (laughs) fortunately backed off um yeah but yeah when you live in that environment there's it's a daily occurrence bumping into things and all sorts of stories that come out of it did you have any incidents with lions charging you or anything like that yeah yeah yes <laughs> is the answer to that one particular again as you mentioned at the beginning of the chat the lion with the, the photograph with the lion with the blood yeah face so him and his brother reigned over the mwamba kaingo pride which again was in the area that i was working in at south Owangwa. and he actually developed it was either ringworm or mange we never actually got confirmation of which it was but he deteriorated very quickly and i mean the last 10 days of his life he actually moved into camp the camp i was running right 
and we had a waterhole in camp which attracted herbivores throughout the year and in turn was a great place for the carnivores to hunt from yeah. um, so he moved into the area because there was a steady stream of food coming in and he actually managed to kill a buffalo on one particular occasion in front of the hide however he wasn't he wasn't strong enough to open up the carcass so after the third or fourth day of this buffalo baking in the sun in 35 degree heat was starting to smell a bit and given the proximity to camp was it was actually becoming very unpleasant for everyone. So we had to try and find a way to move this animal, um, which is difficult when you've got a, a lion guarding it, basically. So yeah. I actually went down into the hide to try and assess everything and the best way to do this. And I remember walking down and peering sort of through the, the window of the hide, the gap in the wall, and just sort of watching him as I was coming down. He sort of looked up, snarled a bit and sort of relaxed and just kept a, an eye on us as we went down. And I remember I sat down had a look around and started taking photos and then i sort of thought oh my camera's not focusing that sort of and then it occurred to me that that's i mean anything closer than 1.2 meters that particular setup i had with the lens and the camera couldn't focus so there's that realization oh he's he must be quite close and yeah as i looked up he was charging towards the hide and i said i don't know how the structures didn't collapse around me because it was only made of bamboo and and grass but it uh it held and this lion came and he actually managed to head and paw came in through the the window of the hide and <laughs> i fortunately fell backwards and was just sort of on my back looking up at this huge male lion not very happy with me but fortunately say fortunately the structure held and i managed to sort of get out of the hide that was interesting um <laughs> but i will say that there were no guests at that time and no. it's one thing you you wouldn't take guests into that situation but when you're working and in, in that environment you have to deal with these sorts of things as i'm just by the nature of where you are say you wouldn't subject guests to that sort of danger but when you're living there and working there it's something you have to live with what, what, what would you say is your most beautiful moment that you've experienced there is a camp called flat dogs which is where i used to go for my days off so we would work a month on in camp and then we would get four days off so effectively four sundays yeah. which we would take as one so we'd yeah get four days in a row off and one camp i'd go to this place flat dogs which was down in the main area of the park beautifully located on the river and yeah we'd go there and basically not do anything for four days and i remember one evening the sun was going down all the guests were out of camp obviously on game drive and i remember they had a lovely fire pit overlooking the river and they always light the fire around around that time around five o'clock so i took my book got a gin and tonic and headed out to the fire and just sat there and, and watched the sun go down as i was walking towards the fire area i noticed elephant bull about sort of 100 yards away to the left um, actually drinking from the swimming pool of the camp so again that's not close enough to really worry about so i carried on started reading my book drinking my gin and tonic and after about half an hour sort of again you get that feeling of oh something's quite close by so i remember looking up and the elephant was actually walking towards me probably at this stage about 20 30 meters away and uh, it was too late to really move so i just sort of sat there and just carried on thinking he would sort of pass behind me or come in front and move off i was actually sat so there was a sort of a semicircle of camp chairs and i was on one that had a, a bush close to it and he actually decided to come and feed on that bush that I was sat right next to and I could just sort of hear him and just see him out the corner of my eye feeding basically above me and then I sort of I lost sight of him so I thought okay well he's he's had his feed he's heading off and then just out of the corner of my eye I just saw this tusk emerge probably about six inches from my face and I looked down and his foot was again about a few inches from mine and what he'd done he'd actually come around the back of me and was effectively standing right next to where I was sitting <laughs> And I remember thinking, okay, fine. Yeah, not much I can do apart from just sit there. And I remember looking down. And one thing that struck me amongst all of that was how shiny his toenails were. I could see my reflection in these toenails of an elephant. I was looking there and at his feet. And then I looked up and this trunk sort of came up, just sniffed me from foot right the way up to my face. 
just moved his trunk up me, had a sniff, and then very quietly moved off. That's an experience and a memory that I don't think will ever will ever leave me. No. And yeah, it was yeah incredible. That was amazing. Absolutely mm. amazing. And do you have any wild dog experiences? I've been sat in camp and in the morning around fi- the, the campfire and dogs have chased impala straight through. See, the way dogs hunt, they, they effectively just outrun their prey and chase them down to a point of, of exhaustion. They're not ambush hunters. They've got incredible stamina. So once they lock onto something, they'll just just follow it and there's been times where they have run through camp any any okay. sighting of dogs is special just given that i say south Wanga has a very strong population but africa as a whole their the numbers are very few so seeing them is always always incredible so one of my just thinking about now the best probably my most memorable wild dog sighting was actually in mana pools in zimbabwe and then it was actually with the one of the packs that featured on dynasties the bbc yeah. series the camp i was staying at knew they were denning um, not too far away and and we actually went to the den on foot. I mean, it was about a two mile walk into the bush to where they were denning. And we spent probably a good hour or so with them just sat about 50 meters away. And the adults actually came back after a hunt and regurgitated meat for the pups whilst we were there. And it was, it was yeah, phenomenal. Manipals is, um, is a really beautiful, beautiful place. And I remember speaking to somebody about that in terms of uh, when the dynasty program came out mm. wondering where they'd filmed that painted dog program to be a guide you know filming with the bbc must be mm. quite an incredible experience do you know any of the guides that you that were working with the bbc yeah so the guide i've worked with most often in manapool's henry um he actually guided the film crew for dynasties for the mm. bbc and he's yeah he's he's fantastic i mean there's incidences on the documentary and if you watch the section they do about how they captured everything and he's able to identify one pack from the other just by the smell of their dung and that's how they actually got that footage of one of the hunts was because of that and no mana pools is it's such a special place and it, it's actually the destination that i get most excited about going to i always say to people when discussing about what they want on their safari is like i said about south Wangwa, if you want to see as much as possible then south Wangwa is the place to go but for a truly wild immersive experience then i think mana pools is the place to go you yeah. don't see as much but in my experience whenever you do see something it's always incredible and just the the whole environment is it's just it's absolutely stunning and what separates mana pools from anywhere else is the freedom and ability to explore the place on foot a big emphasis there is is walking walking safaris and for example if you see something that's off-road you park up the vehicle jump off and approach on foot whether that be wild dog, lion, elephant. And that, again, from a photographic point of view, is is a game changer, being able to be on foot and just the angle that provides. Yeah. And just from an experience as well, being on foot with elephants a foot away um, while they feed. And again, watching lions feed on yeah. foot is, yeah, it's just a, an incredible, awesome experience that nowhere else offers, really. It's, it's a crazy stuff like that, actually, that you, you go away for, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, experiences and memories that you can't get anywhere else. And that you, so you have to go to these remote, wonderful places if that's what you're after. And that's what makes it so special. Brilliant. Matt, thank you so much. Let's stay in touch. And- and perhaps we can have a, another conversation about polar bears and, and actually India as well. So I'd love to hear more about that. That'd be great. Yeah. And uh, thank you for having me. So hopefully we can both both start heading off to Africa. Thanks, mate. I really appreciate it. And uh, you take care and we'll see you on the other side. Cheers, Steve. All the best. Take care, buddy. Wow. Isn't Matt so cool? I love his work and his passion for Africa. You can get in contact with Matt through his website, armstrongsafaris.com and hook up on social, on Twitter at Matt Wildlife and me too at Steve Odie the show notes will have all of the links that we talk about and you can find me on Apple Podcasts and Spotify 
If you like the show, you can subscribe, rate and review. I love you guys. Thanks for listening. And I'll be back with another amazing show real soon. In the meantime, keep dreaming of being in Africa, hear that dawn chorus and watch wildlife unfold right in front of you. Take care, everyone.